looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. Happy holiday, guys, and happy Christmas Eve. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. Today's guest is Rob Beardsley. Rob is the founder of Lone Star Capital Group. He's also the author of The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions, which is a book I picked up, read, really enjoyed. So I reached out to Rob to have him on the show. We're going to be talking all things multifamily today, so I hope you guys do enjoy the episode. Enjoy the rest of your holiday season, and our next episode will be coming out next week on the 31st of December, last day of the year, New Year's Eve, and my birthday, of course. So hope you guys enjoy this week's episode, and I'll see you next week. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. I want to introduce today's guest, which is Rob Beardsley. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, not a problem. So you wrote an awesome book that I actually found on Amazon, read it, really enjoyed it. And then as I was reading, I was like, I got to reach out to this guy, get him on the show. I like what you're doing and what you're putting out there. The name of the book is The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions. Um, again, it's a smaller book. It's about 100 pages. You can definitely bang it out in one reading, but it, it's a great book on the underwriting of multifamily properties. Uh, but please, Rob, go ahead, introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you're doing, and uh, we'll dive right in. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm the founder of Lone Star Capital. Uh, this is a company that my business partner and I, we started about three years ago to focus on owning and operating multifamily, primarily in Texas. Uh, we've since acquired over 1,500 units and we've been uh, you know, growing by partnering with uh, friends and family, as well as uh, family offices and, and private equity firms. So uh, you know, looking to build relationships in a, you know, in the diverse world of, of, of capital raising, as well as, as, you know, as you read in the book, a big focus of ours is conservative underwriting, due diligence, and, you know, really trying to find, find value where sometimes other people are missing out. Right. Most definitely. And it seems like, especially from the book, what you really like to focus on and, and, you know, put the spotlight on is your underwriting. And like you said, super conservatively, that due diligence period, um, is obviously very important to you guys. So you said you guys are in the Texas market. What markets are you in in Texas and how'd you find those markets and why did you guys choose to invest in those markets? So, you know, Texas isn't a secret by any means. There's a lot of competition there. A lot of people are excited and interested in what's happening there in terms of population growth, job growth, migration. Um, it's a business-friendly state landlord friendly state. So it's got all those things going for it. No state income taxes. So, you know, the thesis is there, uh, but more specifically for us, we really like Houston and we like the other markets as well. But just the, the thing about Houston that's interesting is it's almost a little bit of a contrarian play. There's a lot of people out there that look at Houston and they think of flood risk and they think of uh, correlation to the oil and gas industry. Mm. And there's truth to both. Absolutely. But the mistake that I believe or we believe that people make is when they paint Houston as a monolith and they just say, okay, well, the whole market is that way. And that's obviously not true. Houston is on pace to become the third largest city in the country. Wow. And that, that's obviously very attractive. And then right. number two, it's a diversity. There's 
many submarkets. It's, it's a huge sprawling city. So there are some parts of Houston that have minimal flood risk and there are some parts of Houston that have minimal exposure to oil and gas. So it's really a function of where you are in the market and drilling down and, uh, you know, doing a more direct or precise analysis. And that leads into our overall approach to evaluating opportunities is really from a bottom-up approach. We don't just say, well, we love this market or, or, you know, this neighborhood and then buy anything in that neighborhood. Right. We look at it from the bottom up. We say, okay, here's the opportunity. What does this look like at the, at the asset level? And then we kind of go up from there and just make sure that it checks the boxes uh, in terms of submarket market and things like that. Now talk to us a little bit about the criteria you have for looking for these properties. So when you and your partner, whoever it is, that's going out looking for acquisitions, are you guys looking for a, a certain unit count, a certain uh, submarket of Austin, a certain price per unit? What do you guys look for that attracts you to a deal? So we're looking for a few things and the common common criteria or, or filters that people use are unit count. And so for us, we, we like to be over 150 units. Okay. It's easier to, easier to staff, economies of scale, uh, you know, and, and it take, it, it's worth it to spend the time on an, on an asset of that size, right? An asset can become overlooked if it's only 30 units, 40 units, 80 units even. So that's something that's important. Vintage is another big one that people focus on. So you have a lot of groups that will say, you know, 70, 60s and 70s assets are no-goes because there's some historical construction, the quality of 70s construction versus 80s construction can be different and and can be worse. So a lot of people just mark that line and say, well, I'm only 1980s or newer. Uh, and then you've got on the institutional side, there are groups that really want 2000s and newer. And so everyone's got their own threshold and what they're looking for. Right. Again, we don't just blanket and make, you know, blanket statements. We look at a deal holistically and we'll say, well, we don't love a seventies asset, but if other parts about the deal make sense. And if we're being compensated for the risk, or it appears that we're, we're getting a discount based on potential issues that may come up with the construction, like future ongoing CapEx needs, we're comfortable with that. So for us on that side of things, we're looking at mostly set 1970s into the 1990s. And even the 90s are a challenge for us because we recognize the increased competition at the 1990s vintage. And then in the 2000s, we, we have a harder time looking at those deals as well. And also, not only is there more competition in that space or a different buyer, typically, there's also just less opportunity for value add. Right. Okay. And you said it pretty well too. You said we're being compensated. So it's, we really don't like those older units, which were the same way. We don't like going past 1970 because the construction is more expensive or it's not as good. Uh, you're being compensated in another sense. That means that you're getting more of a discount somewhere else in the deal to make those returns up to those investors is what it comes down to. Um, er earlier on, you also mentioned, you know, you have friends and family investing with you, which is, you know, what everyone does to start out and throughout if they stick with you. You also mentioned family offices. How are you able to win over some family offices to invest with you versus other investing uh, assets or, or avenues? Right. So that, that world of larger investors, larger equity checks and uh, partnerships are, is, a, is a tricky world for sure. And it, it's, it can be frustrating when you're starting out because you're looking for the quick solution. 
you're, you're trying to grow your company, you have capital needs and you need those needs met right away. Right. Problem with that is family offices are, and we could talk about other investing entities and then just family offices, but just focusing on them for a second. They're, they're more long-term minded, they're patient capital and mm, they don't yeah. need to do a deal. And so they can build a relationship with you over six months or a year. And that's not a problem for them. For you, you might say, well, let's just do due diligence real quick and, and let's close this deal. But right. most of them don't work that way. So in terms of building those relationships, it's really about FaceTime, building that trust and, and being able to demonstrate your track record and uh, that, that you really that you're a good partner to work with. I think a lot of people overlook the reality that at the end of the day, these these partnerships are more than just does your deal look good? It looks good. All right, here's the money because there's so much that happens post closing and you have to interact with these people on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. And you want to like who you work with and enjoy working with them. And so uh, that's something that you need to be able to, to show them as well. Not just that your deals are good and that you're competent. Most definitely. And, and how do you even start an intro with something like that? Let's say someone that's listening. Cause we do have a lot of syndicators on here. that are saying like, I've got the family and friends down. I've got a lot of high, wet, high net worth individuals that work with me, but like, how do I even get that intro to a family office? How does that look? Yeah, it, it can be sometimes easier than you think. You know, you might just bump into a family office contact at a conference or on LinkedIn, but at the same time, it can be harder than you think because they are likely to be inundated with a lot of new introductions, new requests and things like that. And so sometimes they're really only open to new contacts via some sort of warm relationship, you know, warm, open, a warm introduction. And, and that can make things challenging. There's plenty of experiences that I can think of that I, I did my homework, you know, researched a, a certain firm and then reached out to them cold directly and got no response. But then through some sort of warm introduction, I got an immediate response, warm response, good, good relationship. So it de definitely it requires persistence and don't hesitate to reach out more than once. And uh, also, you know, they're not as hidden as you might think. Like I said, conferences, LinkedIn, looking at the news and kind of seeing who's closing what deals and who's partnering with who can be very helpful. Okay. And being in the Austin market, obviously, like you said, it's no secret. It's a booming market. It's becoming one of the hottest markets in the nation. And with that said, there's a lot of businesses and investors like ourselves going there. Um, I don't go in the Austin market at all because I know that I'm in kind of smaller secondary tertiary markets, but how do you compete with the competition then? If you guys are going in and you, you're finding these opportunities, how are you able to compete with them and you know look more attractive to a seller to lock down a deal? Yeah. And to clarify, we, we also find Austin to be very competitive. All markets, all the primary markets in Texas are competitive, but we, we right. like Houston a lot, which is slightly, in our opinion, less competitive. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. You did say Houston. Right. For yeah. those reasons that I mentioned before. But in terms of standing out and things like that, it's really as much as the market can be frustrating because you can underwrite deal after deal, submit your offers and just be far below the, the guidance price as well as far below where the deal actually trades for. You can start to kind of lose hope and think, oh gosh, well, the market is efficient and pricing is here and my pricing is here, it's never going to work out. But the reality is, even though there's, you know, a broad dissemination of information and, and high competition, the market is still inefficient. And there are still opportunities to buy deals at a discount. And it just really does take 
a lot of repetitions, a lot of offers to uncover those opportunities. And the way that we've been able to essentially find discounts or, or get into deals where we feel comfortable is outside of the traditional marketing process. And that's kind of a cliche because everybody talks about off-market deals and, and that's a buzzword right, and, and it gets people excited. From, yeah. And the reality is off-market deals virtually don't exist. But with that being said, there are still ways to kind of go off the beaten path. For example, there are t- situations where a deal goes to market it runs the traditional marketing course, but it doesn't get the offer that it's looking for. So that marketing process stalls out. And then, you know, it, it may fizzle out for a month, six months, a year. And so with the right follow-up and persistence, you might be able to be at the right place at the right time when that seller finally drops their pricing expectation to be more in line with reality. So it, it really is a function of, of persistence and follow-up. And, and so the stalled marketing process is a great way to go. Obviously off-market and having those relationships that the broker comes to you first or you know third or fifth to begin with is important. Um, so th- that's that's the way that we've really been um, able to, to do our best. Okay. L- let's touch on that a little bit more, basically your deal flow that you guys have coming through. So y- you said you've got some brokers sending you deals. So n- name a few of the ways you guys are finding deals. You got brokers sending them to you. What are some other ways? So brokers are by far the the main source of deal flow, Most right? Anybody yeah. who tells you different is likely lying. You know, <laughs> if they if they say, oh, well, we only source off market and we pull co-star reports and cold call, that's fine. And, and that may work and we do that. Uh, but the problem is the brokers are cold calling five times as much as you are. And mm. they've been calling that owner for five, 10 years. And it's just, that's a very hard thing to get in between. But there are some other ways to, you know, go off market and create value. For example, if you go for a similar approach, you know, you evaluate the market however you choose to, whether it's boots on the ground, drive-by, co-star, et cetera, and you can identify a handful of properties that interest you, rather than trying to contact them directly, you can actually utilize a broker and tell them, hey, these are the properties in this area that interest me. Do you have a a relationship with the seller? Do you have a lead? What's the story behind these deals? And that's a great way to start up a conversation with a potential seller on a deal that is not on the market. So that's that's absolutely viable. And then similarly, for deals that are on the market, it is good to evaluate the properties nearby and are, are, are those potentially up for sale or can we turn this into a package deal or something? And then similarly, you can ask the seller, if they have an on-market property, what else do they have in the pipeline? And maybe you can kind of get a first look on on deals that they have on the chopping block. Okay. And getting relationships with these brokers, how would someone go about making a relationship with the broker? Because obviously you're not just going to go email a broker, say, hey, my name's Rob. I'm looking for multifamily in this area. Send me what you got off market. They're not even going to reply to you. So what did you kind of do to stand out from someone else that is looking to work with that broker? Yeah, it's just like the equity relationships. It just takes time. And, you know, a lot of people are get really nervous when they are first talking to brokers. And, you know, there may be some truth to that. They want to maintain a good relationship. They want to put their best foot forward. Exactly. And, and they, you know, they want the broker to nudge deals in their direction. So uh, I, I totally understand that. But at the same time, brokers are happy to build relationships. They're in the business and they need you just as much as you need them. And so just that constant follow-up, like I mentioned, 
reaching out, building that relationship. And the best way to build a relationship, and, and this is this might be another cliche, but it's, uh, in my opinion, so true in every area of the business is just is deals. Whether you're talking to investors or potential equity partners or brokers, the best way to get to know each other and build that relationship is just to talk shop and review deals together so that they can get to know you and what you're looking for and how you look at deals. So that way they can better tailor opportunities uh, for you in the future. And that in the same goes for, for equity partners, right? You can learn so much about an equity partner, the way that they analyze a deal and, and you, you'll learn a lot from hearing their feedback. Right. And it's funny you say, you know, again, I don't want to sound cliche. I don't think you sound cliche at all because the reason why this stuff comes up is because it works. It's, you know, it's building results for us. So I, it, it totally makes sense. The things that you're saying. Uh, one thing that I really liked that you said was, okay, if there's a property that's on market and it's getting ready to be traded and something doesn't work out for it, you look to close by properties to see if those are for sale as well. What are you guys using as far as um, software to look at close by properties? Are you using Yardi Matrix, using CoStar Pro? What are you guys using that you find the most uh, success with? Yeah, we're fans of CoStar and Yardi. Okay. Are you, are you using both of them or do you have one over the other? Because I know a lot of people do use both. Um, I'm more of a CoStar person personally over the Yardi just because the way they're pulling data and whatnot. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's also very market specific. So we, we have, we had both for a period of time and we've had one or the other for a period of time. And I would say it just really is dependent on the market for some markets. Yardi is better for some markets. CoStar is better. So it, it's, it's really hard to say, but I guess through, through experiencing it or trial and error, you can figure that out. Right. And like you said, it's important because per market has different data that they're pulling. Uh, what other tools are you guys utilizing in your business that you're finding to be helpful? So something that's free rather than super expensive, like CoStar <laughs> and Yardi <laughs> is uh, justicemap.org. And justicemap that's, yep. Easy website just to go to. And that's one of my first links that I hit when I see a new property, because I can just quickly input the address and then see what the census tract income is. And I can kind of get a sense with the map with the shading of the map, I can get a sense of the income trends in that area. Uh, and that is obviously a really helpful way to quickly understand the quality of the area. I mean, income isn't everything, but obviously if you're looking at a deal that has $30,000 median incomes versus $80,000 median incomes, that will tell you right away that kind of the general deal you're looking at. Right. Okay. And kind of looking at what we've been seeing with the market over the past few years, like you said, you've been doing this for three years. Obviously you start to see values climb, rents climb, everything's kind of increasing. Where do you project that the market's going to be going? And we won't hold you accountable to anything here. I promise you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I was asked this a lot when COVID hit back in March, April, May. And what I said back then was that I felt that multifamily prices in the markets that we're focused on, which are, you know, the general suburban value add Sunbelt, Texas, Southeast markets. I was predicting that prices would decline by five to 10% over the next year or so. And so far, I, I can't say that that is true. And it might become true in 2021. So that's, that's, that's been my take. And I think if anything, if I were to revise the take today, I would probably say it's more so on the flat to, to down 5%. It's, it's hard to really, aside from interest rates going down, it's really hard to justify 
further increases in uh, valuations. And so right. looking at both sides of the valuation equation, you've got NOI and you've got cap rate, right? And it's hard to imagine NOIs increasing uh, aside from inflation. You know, if inflation kicks in because of all the money in the market and, and things happening. Right in this last year, yeah. Right. So you could see inflation coming, but inflation takes typically a little more time than that. But inflation is one of the only ways that I could really see that and that we see NOI growth. And then on the valuation side with cap rates, we've seen cap rates, I would say, probably go down a bit because interest rates move down substantially. So that's what's kind of kept pricing where, you know, pricing really should have come down post COVID but it really hasn't because cap rates went down because of interest rates. So even if NOI deteriorates a bit, the decrease in cap rate buoys that valuation and you know we're pretty yep. much in the same place. So it's hard to see cap rates go down much further. And people have been saying that for years, right? Where cap rates just keep- And keep, they just keep compressing. <laughs> right. It's, it's a secular trend and, and it's just been going down, down, down. Uh, but I feel like we are kind of reaching this mental floor where interest rates have actually fallen more than cap rates have, and yet cap rates aren't going down further, right? If you have, call it a deal that's stabilized at a five and a half cap and interest rates today are 3%, that's a 250 basis point spread. Yeah. That, is, that is attractive, you know, by historical measures. When, when things get out of control, uh, that spread typically compresses to around 150 basis points, like it did in 2007. And you know, right now, if you just look at that one metric, we're, we're in decent shape from a valuation perspective. It's not, this isn't like a bubble. So, so it's funny to see that cap rates aren't compressing further to move in lockstep with the decline in interest rates. So that's why I kind of think, uh, you know, we're at somewhat of a mental floor. Yeah, most definitely. I couldn't agree with you more with that. Um, you worded that pretty well as well. Um, getting back kind of to your book. So, when did you write this book? What made you want to write it? What was the purpose of writing this book? So I had wanted to write it for, for quite some time because when I started teaching myself this, uh, you know, three, four years ago, there wasn't this succinct resource out there. And I was very surprised by that. Uh, you know, you maybe could seek out a $2,000 bootcamp or some sort of course and things like that, but nothing felt really like the, the, the right tool for the job. And so after I taught myself and, you know, really went down this path, I told myself, well, this would be a fantastic thing to actually create and share because not only did I go through the learning curve without it, so many people reaching out to me saying, well, how did you learn and, and how can I learn? And I didn't have a great answer for them. It's not like I could just point to, oh, go to this website or buy this book, you know, and people are just asking for that simple solution. And so it really felt like the market would, um, get a lot of value from uh, something like this. So, so I set out in February of 2020 to begin writing. And then shortly after COVID hit, and then we were kind of in, a, in, a, in that lockdown mode. And so I used that lockdown as motivation to just crank out. And, and, and I yeah. would just, yeah, on the weekends, I was just writing for, for many hours and, and turning out the pages. So I was able to write the book pretty quickly in only a couple months and then go through this editing and publishing process. And, and it was out in May, which was really exciting, super fun to launch it and, and see the response. And uh, yeah, it's been a fantastic experience. Yeah, no, you did a fabulous job of it. Uh, 
I really enjoyed it. Crushed it in just about an evening and a half. Um, one part of the book, so many parts of the book you touched on that most people don't touch on, which I like, but um, one that really stood out to me that you don't hear a lot about unless you're going over your PPM documents and your attorney's going over them with you is the uh, cumulative and compounding for the preferred return. So I think that's a really important part that passive limited partners need to be aware of if that consists in the deal or not. Um, do you want to go ahead and take a minute, just kind of explain that to someone that's listening if they're a passive investor and is like, what is, what is he talking about? Right, right. So this is definitely an interesting conversation where basically a preferred return, first off, if you're not familiar with what a preferred return is, it's basically a preferential step in this in the priority of distributions whereby investors are owed a certain preferred return or a hurdle rate of call it 8%, but prior to any secondary or subsequent distributions, and those subsequent distributions can be made to the sponsor as a promote, or it can be made uh, you know, in, a, in a tiered tiered structure where you're splitting it 70-30 or 50-50, where the sponsor is getting a piece of your cash flow essentially, or profits upon sale. So that's a preferred return. And the the trouble with the preferred return is it doesn't mean the same in every deal. It doesn't mean the same thing in every deal. There's many different ways to structure preferred return. And like you mentioned, it can be cumulative, non-compounding, it can be compounding. And so the way that we look at it is there's really two main types of preferred return. One being where the sponsor is taking a promote on cash flow, and the other where the sponsor is not taking a promote on cash flow. And that's because their promote, which is again their carried interest after that hurdle rate is met, is subordinated to not only the preferred return of 8%, but also to a return of capital. And that's a huge distinction. And typically it's a lot more favorable for investors. If you just think about it, the, the, the priority step there is first investors get their 8% compounding return, then they get all of their money back. And then the manager participates in the profits as an investor. That's highly attractive oh, because yeah. I, I know that I'm protected essentially that there's no going to be, there's no sharing in profits until all my risk is off the table. And you're I've in the first class seat. Return. Yeah. It's wonderful. Meanwhile, on the preferred return style where there's a promote on cash flow, the priority step is simply meet the investor's 8% uh, hurdle rate and thereafter there's cash flow split. So those are the two main ones you see and there are pros and cons of both. I mean, typically the protection is better in the one we described earlier, but at the same time, what that does is it since the sponsor doesn't get any cash flow, it motivates them to sell. So if you're a longer term investor, you need to be aware that potentially the deal structure mechanisms in place on your deal are incentivizing the sponsor to sell, which might be at odds with your own investment strategy. So you, you need to understand that a bit. And um, the, other, the other piece too is from the sponsor perspective. Is it to your benefit to take a uh, promote on cash flow and structure your deal that way it might be but when you look at a lot of deals there there aren't that many deals that really cash flow above and beyond eight percent on average so you're not really missing out on much if you just subordinate your promote to a return of capital and and give all cash flow to investors so it's for, from from our perspective it's one way to make investors really happy and it's a and you're turning your deal structure into a selling point rather than you know, a footnote of here are my hidden fees, right? Type right. of thing. So 
it's, it's always good to find ways to just make it, the deal sell itself, make it a no brainer for investors. So uh, I'm assuming you guys are partaking in the first half. Is that what you guys are doing then? Yes. Out of the one you just mentioned. Okay. Awesome. That makes sense. Um, yeah. I mean, like you said, a lot of deals, they're not going to cash flow above that 8%. So the GPs, the sponsors, you know, they're making their money off of the fees at the time being, or any money they have invested in the deal themselves. Other than that, you know, it's just gas money to get them through the deal until it's the sale period or, you know, wherever they're at. Um, yeah, again, awesome book. Really enjoy it. If you guys are looking for a copy of that, um, Rob, where can they find that? Right on Amazon? Yep. Head over to Amazon. Look up the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions. Uh, check it out. Please leave a review. Let me know how you like it. Awesome. How to, how to let you put that in there, you know, uh, that plugin. Um, real quick before we head into the next section of the show, did you have anything else you wanted to touch on or talk about? Or are you good to kind of move forward? Yeah, we can move forward. Okay, awesome. So we're going to head over to the section of the show called the Curious Cues. I'm going to throw some questions at you and we'll get your answer for them. First question is favorite podcast you enjoy listening to? Favorite podcast? The uh, Capital Allocators podcast is a good one. It's diverse guests from mostly on the public equities investing side. So, you know, hedge funds and things like that, but it's just very sophisticated um, kind of investing discussions. Okay, great. Favorite book you enjoy reading? I recently finished uh, High Output Management, which I thought was one of the best business books I'd ever read. Followed it up with Profit First, which is kind of a more easy read, fun book, but also hits hard on on some really good concepts on, on running your business and, and maintaining and growing profitability. So those are some of the, the fun ones I've recently read. Okay, awesome. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome? It's definitely, like we talked about, relationships, track record, because when you're talking about this business in particular, things move very slowly. So it's really hard to build relationships and track record quickly. Because right. unlike, for example, if you're, if you're launching a hedge fund, you could trade for six months, and now you've got a pretty good track record to show that your, your trading history that you've made you know, 10,000 trades in the last six months. But in real estate, uh, you know, it might be 10 years until you really have built up an institutional quality track record. And right. that's, that's, that's a really tough challenge. Exactly. You know, it, one of my buddies always said, you know, it's the quality over the quantity of the deals you've done. You know, you, you may only do 10 deals in five years, but how good were those deals and how much money didn't profit to make your investors and your company itself. Uh, favorite non-real estate related hobby you enjoy doing? I would say uh, working out, being active, you know, whether it's the gym, yoga, golf, that type of stuff. Okay. Awesome. And newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's uh, newer in the real estate world or looking to dive in, or they just kind of hit a wall and trying to move forward? Talk to as many people as possible and don't approach these conversations and these relationships in the way that you're looking to pick their brain and you're looking to, just, just learn from them, uh, you know, really come to these relationships as a way to just have discussions, see about synergies. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a fake it till you make it right. It, it, Cause if right. you really are brand new, what can you really offer? Well, find something and, and bring it to the table. But, but I don't like the idea of just trying to go out there and, you know, pick people's brains because, because while that is beneficial, uh, it's just, it, it's not, 
not the most effective, but but what is the most effective is building those relationships, not only for what those relationships can bring, but the knowledge that they bring. You learn twice as fast by interacting with people and being willing to ask questions when you don't understand something rather than just trying to, you know, put your nose in a book and, you know, learn everything on your own. Right. Yeah, that's great. I, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I think people are going to be able to pull a lot of information out of this. If someone wanted to contact you or ask questions about Lone Star Capital or even wanted to invest with you, how can they reach out to you? Yeah. So the best place to learn more about us is at, over at LoneStarCapGroup.com. Uh, on our website, you can get a free download of the underwriting model that we use day in, day out to underwrite deals. Um, and you can also uh, find more information about investing with us or, uh, or, or partnering with us. Awesome. Very good. We appreciate you having on the show. Yep. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.